So last time we stopped. Let me go to the place. Let's begin with this graph right here. So what we show here is the interaction between different levels that we call the axis because it goes in a vertical way. And we can see the interaction of three levels, as I said, the hypothalamus, which is part of the central nervous system, the pituitary gland, also called hypophysis gland, which has two portions, anterior and posterior, also known as adenal hypophysis and neural hypophysis. And the third level is the target organ. And in between, we see arrows that are showing the effect of hormones. Hormones that are made or either by the hypothalamus or by the hypothesis of pituitary gland. And they are going to uh, be directed uh, to the target organ. The target organ may be one of these gonads, say ovaries and testes, adrenal cortex, which is another gland, thyroid gland, mammary gland, liver, kidney, or mammary gland. And what we see here, the list of hormones made by the hypothalamus, GnRH, CRH, the RH letters mean, for all cases, releasing hormones. And the first letter, Gn for gonadotropin, C for corticotropin, T for thyroid, uh, thyroid, P for prolactin, and G for growth. So they go and interact or exert an impact to stimulate the hypothesis to make these other hormones. GnRH stimulates the hypothesis of pituitary gland to make FSH and LH. And this FSH and LH is going down in the axis, is going to stimulate the gonads, say ovaries or testes. Also you see different colors for each of the squares naming different types of hormones. For instance, this one, uh, the CRH, you see the same color as ACTH and the same color as uh, adrenal cortex because they, these three are the components of that particular axis. So this is a summary of all the hormones that are made in the pituitary gland, hypothalamus, and each of them, they represent an axis. Now there's something interesting here in this picture because ADH and oxytocin, they are not going to stimulate the neural hypothesis of posterior pituitary gland. The posterior pituitary gland is not making any hormone here. This is the same arrow here. The ADH is made here in the hypothalamus, and it comes down through the axons of these neurons and is released here in the posterior pituitary gland. It's not made here. They are just released. They are made up here in the hypothalamus. And then you have another target organ, the kidney, and memory, uh, and memory gland. So that's what we call the axis, and for each different hormone, and uh, uh, we have these interactions in the axis that we'll see is just negative feedback mechanism as we studied in homeostasis in the first part of the course. Negative feedback inhibition, that's what we're talking about. 
And that's re that relationship between all the components of that axis is what we will describe for each particular case, thyroid gland, adrenal cortex, growth hormone, uh, even gonadotropins like FSH, LH for the ovaries and testes. That is represented here in this graph. Three levels, taking the example of the thyroid gland. The thyroid gland will make this hormone called thyroxine or thyroid hormone. This thyroid is going to make this thyroxine under the effect of the TSH, which is made by the anterior pituitary gland. And the anterior pituitary gland is stimulated to make this hormone by this TRH, which is made up here in the hypothalamus. Now when the thyroxine is made, this thyroxine will circulate in the bloodstream, reach the anterior gland and the hypothalamus, and it will exert negative feedback on them. Meaning that when thyroxine is made at a certain level, a certain amount in the blood, pituitary gland and hypothalamus will detect that and will say, well, that's enough. And they stop making more TSH, so the thyroid gland will not make more thyroxine that is needed. This is a typical negative feedback loop that we studied back in, uh, in the homeostasis part. And that will explain many problems, many problems like hyperthyroidism, which is a disease where the thyroid gland makes an excessive amount of um, thyroid hormone, or hypothyroidism, where the thyroid gland makes few amounts of thyroid hormone, and each particular condition will have different type of symptoms. This is an example for gonadotropins, and you can recognize the same axis, the three levels, hypothalamus, anterior pituitary gland, and the gonads just that the hormones are different. Hypothalamus makes G and RH here. Anterior pituitary gland makes FSH and LH. And the gonads will receive that stimulation and they will make estrogens and androgens. In each case, ovaries will make estrogens, testes will make androgens, sex hormones. And those hormones are going to inhibit when they are made in a certain amount, it will inhibit and in that way, these hormones are regulated in the blood. This is very helpful because when we have some conditions, some problem that we suspect because of some symptoms, we look for the level of hormones and we take a blood test to find out how much thyroid hormone, for instance, there is in the blood if we think that that person may have hypothyroidism. And we can find out the cause by assessing the levels of thyroid hormone, the level of TSH, and even TRH. And we'll see where exactly the problem is. And same for different cases uh, related to the ovaries and testes. Now the hypothalamus, we see the hypothalamus is actually the one on the top of this chain, of these levels. Pituitary gland was, uh, used to be called the master gland. 
because it's actually the one that controls many other glands. But even the hypophysis or pituitary gland is under the control of the hypothalamus, as we have seen. There are three levels. And the hypothalamus makes this kind of hormones, releasing hormones, that will make the pituitary gland make their, uh, produce their hormones. And the hypothalamus is part of the central nervous system. That means that it's connected to many other parts of the brain. So therefore, there will be interaction of different parts of the brain function with the hypothalamus. Like emotions, hypothalamus is connected to the limbic system. And we see, for instance, influence of circadian rhythms. The circadian rhythm is the way or the rhythm that the body has, and that is controlled actually in the diencephalon. The diencephalon has three components, thalamus, hypothalamus, and epithalamus. And the circadian rhythm is going to control or regulate how the metabolism works along the day, and also how the hormones will be released along the day. For instance, growth hormone secretion it seems, uh, is seen to be highest during sleep. And during the day, still make, but at lower levels. So that's called circadian rhythms, and that's the influence of the hypothalamus. Olfactory neurons are also connected with the hypothalamus, and they seem to have some effect. Or different types or levels of stress can affect the production of CRH. And the CRH is related with the ACTH, adrenal cortex, and we have metabolic effects of stress. So there are many complex interactions. And hypothalamus is the connection between the central nervous system and the endocrine system. But this is just another graph showing the same thing. Three levels up to here. And there is even another level here. And this other level at the very bottom is just the ultimate targets. Because, for instance, for the thyroid gland, we can describe the axis. Start at the hypothalamus, pituitary gland, thyroid gland. But even the thyroid gland is going to make thyroid hormone. And the target for that former will be the muscles and the liver. So this last level is the ultimate target, meaning the cells that at the end are going to receive the final product, which in either case may be thyroid hormone or cortisol or prolactin or any of these hormones made in the endocrine glands. There is one gland here that is not under the influence of this axis, and that is the pancreas. You see there is no connection with the hypothalamus or the pituitary gland. It's working on its own. The islet cells of the pancreas. The pancreas is an organ that has two components, endocrine part and exocrine part. The endocrine part these cells will make insulin, glucagon, somatomedic, these three hormones. 
that are going to have this effect on the liver muscles, metabolism of glucose. And the control will be made by the glucose levels. Glucose levels in the blood will regulate in the same way. Negative feedback, homeostatic mechanisms. Is there more glucose in the blood? Well, the pancreas will make more insulin to balance and regulate that level of glucose. But there's no influence of the pituitary gland or hypothalamus directly like a specific hormone acting on the pancreas. It works on its own. It's good to, to know and differentiate that. Now let's start describing specific endocrine glands like the adrenal glands. Let's start with the adrenal glands. A little bit of the anatomy, the adrenal glands, also called suprarenal glands, they are located on top of both kidneys and they are composed by two parts an outer cortex and an inner medulla. They actually work as separate glands. The adrenal medulla is considered neural tissue. It secretes epinephrine and norepinephrine. In response to sympathetic stimulation on the autonomic nervous system, that's why they are considered neural tissue. If we go back in the development, we will be able to see that these cells are actually derived from neurons. That at some moment during the development, they separate from the nervous system and they get enclosed inside the adrenal gland. But they make epinephrine or epinephrine, which are neurotransmitters. And if you go back to autonomic nervous system, you will see these are neurotransmitters produced by the postganglionic neurons. So these are actually neurons if we go back in the development. But then they get specialized, separated, and get uh, enclosed in the adrenal gland. And the adrenal cortex, it's, as the name says, it's a group of cells that is surrounding the adrenal medulla, which is like a cortex. This is glandular epithelium, and it's going to make different hormones, steroid hormones, all of them. And these adrenal cortex will be responsive to ACTH, which is made by the pituitary gland. The adrenal cortex is divided in three layers, which are known as the zona glomerulosa, fasciculata, and zona reticularis. See here, the adrenal gland on top of the kidneys, we have adrenal cortex and adrenal medulla. And if we take a piece of the adrenal cortex, we will see this, three layers of cells, the zona glomerulosa, the zona fasciculata, and the zona reticularis. And it's important because, well, histologically, under the microscope, you can see different types of cells. And each layer will make a different type of hormone which a different function, of course. Glomerulosa, fasciculata, and reticularis.
And that's described here. All these hormones are steroids, and they are known as corticosteroids or corticoids. Corticoids because they come from the cortex. That's the name. That's the origin of the name. Each zone is going to make a different hormone. The zona glomerulosa will make mineralocorticoids, which are going to regulate the balance of sodium and potassium in the blood. Example, aldosterone. That's a hormone made in the zona glomerulosa. The name of the hormone is aldosterone. It is described as a mineralocorticoid meaning that it's produced in the cortex and it has to do with the balance of minerals like sodium and potassium. Second layer, fasciculata, makes glucocorticoids. And the name of the main hormone is called cortisol. And again, in the same way, it, it is it's described as glucocorticoids because it's made in the cortex, and it has to do with the metabolism of glucose. That's why it's called glucocorticoids. Finally, in the third layer, the inner layer, known as the zona reticularis, these cells are going to make adrenal androgens, which are sex hormones, masculine hormones, but these sex hormones are not only for secondary male characteristics. They have for other functions as part of the metabolism. And they are made in very low amounts here in the adrenal androgens. Uh, the name of this particular androgen is called DHEA. Now let's see functions of some of these hormones like the cortisol. This is a list of some of the functions of the cortisol, glucocorticoids. Uh, sometimes we use other names for this cortisol, hydrocortisone. That's a name that derives from the chemical composition. Functions of this cortisol stimulates protein degradation or protein catabolism. Gluconeogenesis. Remember this term, gluconeogenesis, is the production of glucose from non-carbohydrate molecules. Inhibits glucose utilization to raise blood glucose levels. And it stimulates lipolysis. And the purpose of all these actions is to favor the metabolism. Have more glucose available for the cells. Protein catabolism, for what? For getting more energy. Lipolysis, for what? For getting more energy from the molecules of lipids. That's the point of the cortisol. Sometimes cortisol is given as medications. There are medications that are made artificially. Prednisone is one of them. Uh, there are even creams of hydrocortisone or cortisone. And, and essentially they are used to inhibit inflammation. But that may be dangerous because if we give too many of those, especially orally, 
we're going to suppress immune response. Inflammatory processes rely on the immune system, and if we suppress inflammation, we are suppressing the immune response in general. And these people may have increased risk of infectious diseases uh, and other problems, negative side effects that come along with the administration of corticoids. But that is when someone receives these corticoids in large amounts and for a long period of time. When someone getting some corticoids for a short period of time shouldn't be a problem uh, for the physiology. And this graph is just to show how these molecules are related to each other. Here we see the three different colors, the zona glomerulosa, the zona fasciculata, and the zona reticularis. And we see that the common molecule to make all these hormones is cholesterol. In the zona glomerulosa, through different chemical transformations, it ends up in aldosterone. In the fasciculata, we have cortisol and corticosterone, which essentially have the same effect. And from here, this intermediates will get into the reticularis and get transformed in the androgens. So this graph is just to show how all these cells of the three layers are related to each other because all of them, they make the hormones starting from cholesterol. And the fasciculates and reticularis, they just take the cholesterol and get it transformed into androgens. But in either case, they are released to the circulation and these hormones will have different effects. Adrenal medulla. Adrenal medulla cells make epinephrine and norepinephrine. These two are neurotransmitters, but they also work as hormones. We mentioned uh, their production is activated by sympathetic response. The effect will be similar to the sympathetic innervation because it's, it's a neurotransmitter, epinephrine and norepinephrine. But the difference, it lasts 10 times longer. The effect lasts 10 times longer. The effects are the same. Increased cardiac output, increased respiratory rate, mental, mental alertness, dilation of coronary vessels in the blood, increases the metabolic rates. In general, will stimulate, will activate many systems and, and the metabolism. Whenever we have a response from the sympathetic nervous system, and remember we describe the sympathetic as fight or flight, the point is to react, to do something about some event. And the adrenal medulla releases norepinephrine, epinephrine to the bloodstream, enhancing the effects of the sympathetic nervous system. But that has to do with stress. And that there's a relation between stress and adrenal gland, especially when the stress is chronic, chronic stress. Acute stress, like something happens, we get stressed out and we get scared uh, by a threat in 
quick or sudden threat, we do something about it. We escape, we run, we fight, we do something quickly. But imagine being subject of chronic stress every single day. So the, the body will react differently. The body will have will trigger mechanisms. And one of those mechanisms will be increased secretion of ACTH. How come? Hypothalamus. Hypothalamus is nervous system. You're under stress, the hypothalamus will release more CFRH, and that will stimulate secretion of ACTH, and that will increase activation of the adrenal gland. More cortisol production. That's called GAS, General Adaptation Syndrome, which is good to a certain point because when the body is under a chronic disease, let's say, or subject to extreme chronic stress because of chronic trauma, like people that are in the battlefield for many days and weeks and months, well, the cortisol will be secreted in a chronic and increased way, and that will activate the metabolism, will activate whole metabolic pathways. But there's a problem because the cortisol, we said, is going to inhibit inflammation and inhibit the immune system. So there may be a problem with chronic stress, and that is actually uh, seen in many studies where we see people that have chronic stress, they are under the risk of having more frequent infections of any type, respiratory infections, digestive infections, skin infections, and other things, because the cortisol will increase the metabolism, will change things in your body, and uh, can bring other consequences. So this is why prednisone is prescribed for people who have allergies and skin irritation. Say it again. This is why prednisone is prescribed for people who have <clears throat> Yeah, the prednisone is given to inhibit the inflammatory response. In the case of uh, a rash, allergic response, or asthma, it's given for a few days, like two weeks, three weeks max, and then remove, uh, re uh, stopped. Uh, and it will actually work very well. It will inhibit the inflammation, it will relieve the allergy symptoms, but it's not the first option drug. First, Antihistamines must be given, and we have different type of antihistamines now for allergies. But in extreme cases where there's not well good response, then prednisone is used only in some cases. But never longer than three or four weeks, because then we may see effects that are not desired. So chronic stress may lead to increased risk of illness. And also, cortisol may work on higher brain regions to induce depression, anxiety, and even memory suppression. Not in all cases, but there are reports where we can see this uh, type of effects. Especially people, people, some people need to take corticoids for a long time. Like people that have diseases like lupus, arthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, and um, um, autoimmune diseases, they need to take prednisone for a long time. And then in that case, we have to balance the, the, 
the benefit against the risk and um, sometimes accept some secondary effects because it's going to help to uh, improve the symptoms and uh, make the quality of life better. Thyroid gland and parathyroid gland. Thyroid gland is a gland located in the um, the level of the neck under the cartilage known as the thyroid cartilage and the cricoid cartilage, which are part of the larynx. It is composed by two parts, left lobe and right lobe. There's a rich vascularization, a lot of blood vessels reach this gland. Microscopically, if we see it under the microscope, we'll see this picture. And remember, in, in histology, when we do microscopy, we always think as sections, 2D views of, a, of an organ that has three dimensions. So if we see this picture, this image of circles, which actually means is that each of those known as follicles, they are actually like little balls where the walls are the cells known as the follicular cells and inside there is a fluid a material called the colloid. Now in between these follicles there are cells that are known parafollicular cells and they are going to make a different hormone known as calcitonin. Calcitonin from calcium and it has to do with the metabolism of calcium. Besides, the thyroid hormones are made by the follicular cells. So parafollicular and follicular are the same? Follicular cells are different than the parafollicular. They're different cells. The follicular cells are the walls of the follicles. And the parafollicular are the cells in between the follicles. Like in the corners, like filling up these spaces right here. See these two follicles, there's a space here. Yes. These cells are called parafollicular. Okay, the, the whitish part. Because mm -hmm. the dots are, are the follicles. Yeah, yeah, exactly. These follicular cells will be the ones that make the thyroxine or thyroid hormone. And this is a process that has many steps that starts by the production of, uh, with the production of uh, this protein called thyroid globulin. And this is made by the follicular cells. What else in the, is in the follicles? Well, this colloid accumulates iodide. The iodide is then transformed into iodine. And inside the colloid, inside this material known as a colloid, this iodine will be attached to tyrosine, which is uh, an amino acid. 
and we will see these molecules known as monoiodotyrosine and diiodotyrosine, abbreviated MIT-DIT because they contain two molecules of iodine or one molecule or of iodine. And this DIT and MIT, they will get combined. If you combine one molecule of DIT with another DIT, you will have a tetraiodotyronine, or T4. That's the reason we call it T4, or also a tyrosine. But if we combine a DIT plus an MIT, then we have a triiodotyronine, known as T3, which is also thyroid hormone. The most of uh, the actions are exerted by the T4, but both are made, T3 and T4, and also uh, released to the bloodstream. Once they are made, and we are in the colloid still, inside the follicle, they will be dissociated when the thyroid gland receives a simulation from the pituitary gland by the TSH. And at that moment, they will get separated from the thyroglobulin and will be released into the bloodstream. So we notice that iodine is needed. Iodine is needed for the thyroid hormone to be made. And that's the importance of having iodine in our diet because our body is not able to make this iodine. We have to take it from the nature. We have to take, it, take iodine in our diets. And here we have the simplified um, process of thyroid hormone production. What we get in our diets is iodide. Which is circulating in the plasma. Then it's captured by the follicular cells and is oxidized and attached to the thyroglobulin. Thyroglobulin is made by the follicular cells. And in this blue material that we see here called the colloid, all this is happening. Then, when the iodine binds the thyroglobulin, and is when we have, or either MIT or DIT, which combine, as we saw in previous slide, MIT plus DIT, or DIT plus DIT, will get T3 and T4. Well, it says, oh, in parentheses it says 3, T4 as well. Yeah, you should correct this little number here. It should be 3. 3, 4. T3 and T4, yeah. Which are bound, still bound to the thyroid globuli. So this is what the thyroid gland, the thyroid follicle is doing every single second. And when stimulation comes from the TSH, which is made by the pituitary gland, then these T3 and T4 will get dissociated from the thyroid globulin and released, as we see here. T3 and T4 are being released from the follicle, thyroid hormone, and will be bound to a carrier protein. And that's how the T3 and T4 are are transported in the bloodstream bound to a carrier protein.
with you. What are the actions of the thyroid hormone? We see them here. Stimulation of protein synthesis first. So it is anabolic protein synthesis. Promotes maturation of the nervous system. This is a very important thing. Very important. Increases rates of cellular respiration, increased metabolism. And if we measure BMR, based on metabolic rate, we'll see that increased. Thyroid hormone is directed to activate cells. The neurons, they need high metabolic rate, especially during growth and development, talking about infants, newborn infants, and along the childhood, because the brain, nervous system, it is in growth and development at that point. It's part of the learning process, memory acquisition, skills, etc. All that is maturation of the nervous system. And the thyroid hormone is very important at that point. It will help a lot for these neurons to uh, be active, very active and metabolic, uh, metabolically active. The problem, sometimes um, kids are born with hypothyroidism. Why? Because mothers are have hypothyroidism. Or maybe it's different type of conditions, but the point is, if babies, if newborns, kids have hypothyroidism, it's dangerous because the nervous system will not get properly developed, meaning mental retardation. Hypo, yeah. We mentioned a different type of cells, parafollicular cells. So these cells, which are also in the thyroid gland, but in between the follicles, they are not part of the follicular follicles. They're, they make calcitonin, it's a different hormone. This hormone has to do with the metabolism of calcium. It inhibits the dissolution of calcium from the bone. Stimulates excretion of calcium in the kidneys. The point is to lower the blood calcium levels. Calcitonin lower the blood calcium levels. Again, this is part of the homeostasis. We need calcium. One of the reasons we need calcium is for muscular contraction. And the calcium levels in our blood must be always in the normal range. And if we get too high, then calcitonin will be made in order to bring it back to normal levels. As we see in this graph, the high levels of calcium in the blood, they will be, that will stimulate the C cells or parafollicular cells of the thyroid gland to make calcitonin. Calcitonin will have two effects. It will increase the uptake of calcium into bones and inhibit the 
break down of bone. And with that, the calcium level in the blood will be decreased. And the other way around, when the levels of calcium get too low in the blood, there will be a different hormone. It will not be calcitonin. There will be a different hormone called PTH. We'll mention that when we get to that part. Now let's see some problems of the thyroid gland. Diseases of the thyroid. Two things. Too much <coughs> thyroid hormone or too few thyroid hormone. If it's too much of a thyroid hormone, we call it hyperthyroidism. If it's few amounts of thyroid hormone, we call it hypothyroidism. Hypothyroidism, and let's start here, hypothyroidism. Low levels of thyroid hormone bring the symptoms. Weight gain, low metabolic rates. We say that the thyroid hormone stimulates the metabolism. Poor adaptation to cold, stress. There is a type of edema or swelling in the subcutaneous tissue. Um, which is seen in hypothyroidism. And here, regarding hypothyroidism, we should mention this condition called cretinism. And this is what I was saying, I was mentioning about kids. Cretinism is a, is a term that used to be, um, uh, was used uh, to name this condition. If it's hypothyroidism, especially if it happens during the pregnancy or newborns right after birth, and it brings metal retardation, as I was saying. Thyroid hormone is very important for the neurons and for the development of the nervous system. The other problem is hyperthyroidism. In hyperthyroidism, we see increased level of thyroid hormone. The main cause, the main cause of hyperthyroidism is known as Graves' disease. Graves' disease is considered an autoimmune disease. How this works, the Graves' disease, there is an antibody made for the immune system, and this is something abnormal, um, and those antibodies are going to bind the receptors in the thyroid gland, and they work as TSH. Remember, TSH stimulates the production of a thyroid hormone. So the thyroid gland will react to the stimulation of those antibodies, making a lot of thyroid hormone. And that's usually the case of someone with hyperthyroidism. Although maybe other, um, other causes, but this is one of the main causes um, of hyperthyroidism. Now, going back to the top of this slide, we mentioned iodine deficiency because it's an important problem still in some parts of the world. If there's not enough iodine consumption in the diet, usually the iodine comes in the, in the salt, in the table salt that we consume every day. And that is by, by law, is a regulation that many years ago was established in many countries all over the world. Um, but there still may be some places, especially small villages, where the consumption of salt is not 
containing iodine, and they may have this problem. And actually, we see this problem in whole populations of a small village, let's say. And what happens with this? With this, no iodine, remember in the picture of the production of thyroid hormone here, iodine is needed. There must be iodine so we can make thyroid hormone. If there's no iodine, it's gonna happen. It's not this part. There's only thyroglobulin produced. And there will be excessive amount of thyroglobulin made here. These follicular cells, just trying to compensate. And we see these follicles grow. These are huge follicles. And imagine the whole thyroid gland will start growing and we have these uh, cases of uh, people with big masses in the neck. We call that goiter. And that's because iron deficiency, iodine deficiency usually. Especially the ones that are really big, that we see like big masses in the neck. And that's a reaction of the thyroid gland. There's not iodine in the diet. And as a reaction, the cells start making more thyroglobulin, trying to compensate. And also trying to grow more in order to make more, but there's no iodine or not enough. And the symptoms are usually hypothyroidism. They're usually hypothyroidism. And that's what we call goiter. Here, this is a list of symptoms of hypothyroidism and hyperthyroidism, just to compare and see the effects of the thyroid gland. For instance, the pulse, the heart rate. The person who is hypothyroid will be slow, like bradycardia, less than 60 per minute. Hyperthyroidism, increased heart rate. It's just the effect of the thyroid hormone. Activity and sleep. People with hyperthyroidism are usually very active. They look very anxious, they don't sleep. People with hypothyroidism, they are lethargic, they are all the time uh, sleepy. Temperature tolerance and hypothyroidism, intolerance to cold, too cold all the time. And hyperthyroidism, since the metabolism is very active, they feel very hot all the time. How to fix this problem? Well, the hypothyroidism is very easy to fix. We just give thyroid hormone. Thyroid hormone is available in commercial preparation. So these people are treated and given uh, them uh, a dosage of uh, thyroxine. That's the name of the thyroid hormone. Every day, and uh, they are cured of the problem. Well, actually, the thyroid gland is not working probably anymore, but they have the thyroid hormone uh, if they take it every day. Hyperthyroidism may be a little more complex. There's different type of treatment for that. But again, the point is to bring back to homeostasis. This graph is to show how, uh, what is the effect of the, what is the effect of the um, goiter, how the goiter develops. Here you see a normal thyroid gland. And the normal homeostatic metabolism, or homeostatic mechanism that we mentioned before, the thyroid hormone is made and it's negative uh, feedback to the pituitary gland and hypothalamus. But let's say, let's say there is not enough iodine. So this T3 and T4 
are low in the bloodstream. That will make not enough negative feedback to the pituitary gland. Therefore, the pituitary gland will make an excessive amount of TSH. And then that TSH will hyperstimulate the thyroid gland. But there's not enough iodine in the diet. So this thyroid gland will start making more thyroglobulin, will start growing a little bit like this, or a lot, but without iodine. So we see the thyroid gland grow. But there's not iodine in the, in the diet, so the, this thyroid gland will not make enough amount of thyroid hormone. And what's the treatment for that? Well, just give iodine. Give iodine and uh, the, the, the thyroid gland will start working again. So everything is normal, they just need iodine. So, I'm sorry, the word hypertrophy is trophy, it's throwing me off. So, we're saying that when there's hypothyroidism, you have goiter. Yeah. Yeah, but there is hypertrophy because if you remember the definition of hypertrophy, is the cells, the cells get big. The follicles get really big. And that's what we call, there's a hypertrophy um, of the thyroid gland. Okay, get big as a compensation of the absence of... Exactly, of iodine and excessive amount of TSH. Yeah, we may think that it increases in size and it's hypertrophic and it will be hyperfunctioning, but it's not because it's not iodine. Goiter is just a generic term. It just means thyroid gland increase in size. Now, sometimes we see goiter in people with hyperthyroidism, like in grave disease. We see the thyroid gland grow, not too much, but it grows in size. In that case, there is iodine in the diet. So in that case, the thyroid gland will be increasing size, and it will make a lot of thyroid hormone at the same time. But it's different here because there's not enough iodine and it will not make enough thyroid hormone. And that's what I'm talking about. You see these type of masses in the neck. Um, we call this goiter, endemic goiter, because it's usually found in a very well-identified population where we can uh, detect the low levels of iodine in the blood and in the, the food they take, and it can be corrected with giving iodine. So would it, would it get smaller, or would it require surgery? That's a different situation. In some cases, it reduces in size progressively, but there is some situations where surgery may be required because it is compressing. Imagine what's in here, the carotid gland, there are nerves, there are many things here, and even the respiration sometimes, and may be affected, especially during sleep. Um, but the first thing is give them iodine and have the thyroid gland work. And after the thyroid gland has recovered and function, um, we see reduction. In some cases, not enough reduction and has to be treated surgically. But surgery is not the first option in this case. The first option is give the treatment with iodine and correct the, the problem in terms of thyroid hormone, but um, then see if surgery is needed long term. It, even if this is very chronic, yeah. Years. Yeah. Uh, at what age? I've seen this in grown up people, I haven't seen this in kids. So, uh, 
at what age people start, they start noticing that there's a void? You can see it at any, t any age. You can see it at any age. Yeah. But the thing is, in kids, you will see, not only this, you will see mental retardation. If you see in these populations and these people, uh, places of the world where this still happens, which are very few, um, the kids, they have mental retardation. They have problems learning, mental retardation, and problems in development. And, uh, It may take up to three, six months, and even a year after the thyroid function or thyroid hormone recovers the function, and then will be reassessed. Um, hypothyroidism is very important to be treated, especially during childhood in kids. Every single newborn is screened for hypothyroidism, which is has to be detected. In newborns, you don't know. You see a baby crying unless there is some evident sign. Sometimes um, hypothyroidism may be detected just by the development landmarks. You see when the babies are growing. At three months, we know that they should be able to um, hold their head. And at six months, they should be able to be seated by themselves. And sometimes that doesn't happen. And, uh, four months, five months, and the baby's not able to hold the head. And uh, if that is detected, they quickly come and say, what's the problem? We may, may find hypothyroidism. But if we wait too long, then we will see problems that cannot be reverted because uh, the brain has lost time and it's not developing properly. So that's very important regarding the thyroid gland. And that's the other way around, hyperthyroidism. In some cases, especially severe cases, we see this problem called exophthalmus, which is actually the eyes look like popping up, popping out. And how this happens, if you remember, if you did anatomy, if you had the chance to dissect the eyeball, see around the eyeball, you see a lot of fat tissue. There's a lot of fat tissue there. You have to clean up when you do dissection. And uh, well, that fat tissue, it has some receptors that are stimulated by the same an antibodies that stimulate the thyroid gland. So there is an inflammation in that fat tissue in the orbit. And that, of course, is pushing the eyeballs out. Um, fat tissue was cataracts, that's something different. No, it's different, yeah. Cataracts is a problem with the lens inside the eye. And um, this also can be reverted to a certain point. It depends on how chronic the, the, the problem is. And it may bring other problems like irritation of the cornea and even ulcers in the cornea because it's actually the eyes coming out. Uh, people cannot be closing the eyelids too well and all that because of the hyperthyroidism. Any more questions about the thyroid gland? Yes, that chart describes most of the main symptoms on the person with hyperthyroidism, and hypothyroidism may have. Do they usually look like shaking hands or kind of fidgeting? Or 
Yeah, if you see someone with hyperthyroidism, some may have the exothalmosin, some others may not have that exothalmosin, but you see, you notice that these people are usually skinny. Uh, people are usually very anxious, very active. Um, and well, in the physical examination, you notice an increased heart rate, uh, excessive sweating sometimes. And even there are some problems with the heart rhythm. Some people are diagnosed of hyperthyroidism because they have problems of rhythm in the heart. After an EKG, electrocardiogram, detecting tachycardia, we see some problems in the rhythm. And we say that may be a hyperthyroidism. We look for the thyroid hormone levels in the blood and we make the diagnosis of that. But all that is mentioned in that table, so all those symptoms and, um, as part of the hyperthyroidism problem. And all these cases can be explained or are assessed by taking a look at the axis, hypothalamus, pituitary gland, and thyroid gland. The same way, exact same way that we did in the PhysioX last week with the rats. Uh, we did exactly the same thing with people that come with hypo or hyperthyroidism, and treatment and everything. Okay, let's go through the parathyroid gland. Parathyroid gland uh, are groups of cells that are different than the thyroid gland, but they are embedded in the thyroid gland tissue. They are posterior. This is a posterior view of the structures of the neck. We see the pharynx. And these little four like, kind of beams is where the parathyroid glands are. There are two on each side, very small. They're usually embedded in the thyroid gland. When we see the thyroid or parathyroid glands under the microscope, we see it in the same slide of thyroid gland sometimes. We have to look for it, and we see it surrounded by the thyroid gland. I'm sorry, you said that this is, this is the front or the back? This is the posterior, the back. Trachea is more anterior, the esophagus is posterior, you see the esophagus first here, trachea. Parathyroid glands, they make this hormone called PTH. That stands for parathyroid hormone. This hormone promotes a rise in the blood calcium by working on the bones. So this PTH responds to low levels of calcium in the blood. This is a counterpart to calcitonin that we mentioned before. PTH and calcitonin, they have antagonistic effects. And in this loop, homeostatic loop, we see decrease in blood calcium is the stimulus to these cells. Parathyroids are going to make this parathyroid PTH. The actions will be on kidneys and bone. Kidneys stimulate reabsorption of calcium. Increased blood calcium will be the effect. But in the bone, dissolution of crystals of calcium phosphate, which is the action of the osteoclasts. If you remember, osteoclasts and osteoblasts Osteoblasts deposit bone and osteoclasts reabsorbs bone. So that stimulates osteoclasts to release calcium and increase the blood calcium. 
and that will be the um, stimulus for this negative feedback loop uh, of the parathyroid gland. So a parathyroid hormone and calcitonin, they have antagonistic effects. PTH will rise the blood calcium and the calcitonin will lower the blood calcium. Calcium is needed. We will see that in the next chapter in muscle. It's very important for muscular contraction. Pancreas. Remember, we mentioned the pancreas in the beginning with this chart, and the pancreas is not connected functionally to the pituitary gland. It works on its own. It has its own negative feedback loop that will not involve the thyroid, I mean, the pituitary gland or hypothalamus. Pancreas is, uh, is an organ that has two parts, endocrine and exocrine. The exocrine part is composed by cells organized as a typical gland with a duct. And these cells are, make, uh, are going to make enzymes, digestive enzymes, that help for digestion of food. But there are groups of cells in between that exocrine part called islets of Langerhans or pancreatic islets, which are going to be the endocrine part or endocrine cells. They don't have a duct, that's the difference, endocrine and exocrine, remember. And these islets, pancreatic islets, contains different, uh, up to four different types of cells. Two of them are alpha cells and beta cells. Beta cells make insulin, and alpha cells will make glucose. Both have to do with the metabolism of glucose, as we will see. Insulin is the primary hormone for the glucose metabolism of glucose uh, concentration regulation. Insulin made by the beta cells, the stimulus for these beta cells so they can start making insulin, is the rise in glucose levels. Usually after a meal, after we eat, we digest the carbohydrates, glucose get into the bloodstream, reaches the pancreas, endocrine part, islets, and these cells will start making insulin. And what's the action of the insulin is the next question. Well, the insulin is going to lower the blood glucose level. Lower because they are too high. We ate a meal rich in carbohydrates. We bring it down to normal range. And it's a very dynamic thing that happens along the time. In a couple of hours after a meal, we should be able to return to normal range in the levels of glucose. What the insulin actually does is to open doors open doors in cells so the glucose can be taken up by the cells. And in that way, the, the glucose levels go uh, down to normal range. So the target cells for the insulin are everywhere. But mostly in the adipose tissue, skeletal muscle, and the liver. And those 
doors that I was mentioning are actually carrier proteins in the cell membrane known as GLUT4 receptors or carrier proteins. And that's where the glucose diffuses by facilitated diffusion into the cells. As I said, mainly in the adipose tissue, muscular tissue, and liver. And in the liver, it will also stimulate this enzyme, glycogen synthase. Glycogen is a storage form, so the insulin will also promote sugar storage. What do you think? Is that a good thing? No. Why? Why? Uh huh. Sugar is bad. Huh? Sugar is bad. That is true. That is true, but when we see it in the whole context of the metabolism. Because what happens actually, the picture is you eat a meal containing carbohydrates, lipids, and proteins. Your digestive system will metabolize all that, will digest it, and you have in your blood glucose, a lot of glucose. That is going to be utilized by your cells if you are in activity, okay? Now, if you have an excess of glucose that is not used right away, it will be taken by the liver in a skeletal muscle. It will be stored inside the cells. If you still have an excess, then that extra amount will be turned into fat. So it is good to a certain point because now imagine that in the next hours you're not eating anything and you need energy, you need glucose, especially your neurons. You need glucose, where are you gonna take it from? From your storage of glycogen that you have in your liver and your skeletal muscle. So in the whole context, it's a good thing because it's going to give us energy when we need it right away, but it may be, uh, if you eat too much of the glucose, if there's too much of that glucose, they, that will be turned into fat which is still a good thing because that will be energy that you need, that you can use if you need it long term. But if you don't use that energy, that turns into excessive accumulation of fat tissue and with all the problems that we know. And that's basically the problem that, uh, that we see mostly. People that eat normal or in excess and it does not make any activity or physical activity at all. So it's not using the energy, so it's storing energy for a long time without using it, that is when it turns a problem. That clears. But, but that's the metabolism for a normal person. But a person with diabetes, what will happen then? That extra, just, what it does is that excess just increase their, their, I guess, their sugar level? In case of diabetes, the picture is, diabetes is a disease. There are two types. But the point is the person is not able to control the levels of glucose, usually because there's a deficiency of insulin or absence of insulin at all. And if there's no insulin, so the glucose will remain in the blood. That's why we detect the glucose level high, and we say that person's diabetic. But what's going on in the cells? The cells of the body, and the liver, adipose tissue, skeletal muscle, they are not 
detecting the presence of insulin. So that no one is opening the doors. And the cells think, the cells don't have eyes, they don't have to detect the glucose presence. They, they just don't get the glucose. They're not getting the glucose. And so the cells think, oh, we're starving. We need glucose, we need energy. And they start taking from other sources, which are lipids, fats. So the metabolism in a person with diabetes changes completely. And that's because of the alteration of the levels of insulin. As usually when someone is diagnosed with diabetes, first time, usually we see that the person loses weight. Because of that, the cells, they are starving of glucose, they need energy. The glucose is in the blood, tons of glucose in the blood, but it cannot be used by the cells because there's no insulin that opens the door. And the person starts using uh, adipose tissue and they lose weight. And they say, that's good, I'm losing weight. You're not good, you're losing weight, but you have diabetes, that's why you're losing weight. But then when they start getting treated, the metabolism starts recovering and, and there are other things, other things because the people with diabetes, they use adipose tissue in excess sometimes. And um, the first part of the course, we talk about ketone bodies. Ketone bodies are a product of the metabolism of, of lipids. So if diabetic people start using lipids for energy, they are going to make ketone bodies which if they accumulate in the blood too much, they can be toxic. And that's the reason of one of the problems that they may have. So the metabolism in diabetic people is a little different. Um, but still, I mean, physical activity, everything, plus the treatment with insulin, will bring everything to normal uh, metabolism uh, levels. So that's a picture just showing the action of the insulin. And those doors that are open are the receptors or carriers known as GLUT4. And uh, insulin is getting here, it has a receptor. <coughs> it's going to stimulate the expression of these carrier proteins on the membrane. So there's no insulin. Those proteins or carriers are not present. Doors are not open and the glucose cannot be taken by the cells. And besides, the excessive amount of glucose in the blood, it is maybe toxic because, remember in anatomy we study the epithelial tissue and it's always a basal lamina, basement membrane under the epithelial cells. Well, the excessive amount of glucose may change the composition of the basement membrane, basal lamina, in the epithelial tissue. And that's one of the problems, especially the blood vessels, kidneys. Glucagon is the other hormone made by the pancreas, the alpha cells of the pancreas. The alpha cells of the pancreas make this hormone that is antagonistic to insulin, and it has all the opposite effects. It is made and secreted when the glucose levels are low. The point is to raise the glucose level. So there's always a action of insulin and glucagon all the time in different parts of the day when we are consuming or not consuming enough amount of glucose. And besides other actions that we see here, um, the Glucagon stimulates the liver to hydrolyze, and you should correct this, not glucagon, it's glycogen. 
into glucose and release it into the blood. We said the point is to keep the glucose levels normal. And if we're not eating, like in fasting, well, the liver will get the glycogen that is stored and release it as glucose to the blood. Second action, gluconeogenesis, which is the production of glucose starting for non-carbohydrates. Again, the point is to make glucose. And it stimulates lipolysis because if there is not enough glucose, it's not enough glucose, we need extra energy and then we take that from the fat and that's the action of the glucagon again. So in these two squares, we have the, what happens if there is an increase in glucose in the plasma, the alpha cells will decrease the production of glucagon, but the beta cells will produce more insulin. But if we have low levels of glucose in the plasma, the glucagon will be increased in production and the insulin will be decreased. Because the point is, if we have too much glucose, we have to lower the glucose. If we have too few of glucose, we have to bring up that glucose. Glucose levels must be always in certain amounts because the main cell that needs glucose and just glucose for metabolism is what type of cell? The cell that relies on glucose for energy all the time. The neurons, the brain needs glucose all the time. And that's one of the reasons that the glucose levels must be in a certain range all the time. Questions about the pancreas, insulin, glucagon? Pineal gland, some words about the pineal gland and other glands that make uh, hormones. Pineal gland is part of the Diencephalon. Diencephalon has, remember, thalamus, hypothalamus, epithalamus. Uh, this is located in the roof of the third ventricle, more posterior. And pineal gland has to do with production of melatonin. Melatonin is this hormone that it's made when the body detects darkness. So at night, melatonin is made at night. Pineal gland participates in regulation of circadian rhythms. So the day and night cycle is important. That has an influence on how we release the hormones, how the physiology gets activated, how the glucose and insulin is, is made during the day also, how the corticoids, the cortisol is secreted in the morning, in the afternoon, at night. And this pineal gland is affected, the secretion of melatonin may be affected by different situations like jet lag, this is the reason of the jet lags. When we travel overseas, especially after 12 hours, 20 hours, and we get to other parts of the world, and our body gets like kind of confused. It takes a couple of days to recover from that and the body readjusts. How this melatonin is made under the influence of the day and night cycle, as you see here. So we did take that. 
for the rating. And that is the stimulus for the peanut gland to make melatonin. Melatonin has an effect. It relaxes our body a little bit. It prepares us for sleep. There, is, um, there are commercial preparations of melatonin that are uh, available to induce sleep, not induce sleep, but relax the body and prepare you for, for sleep uh, time. And it actually helps in people that have problems to relax, uh, not in everyone, but it may have a good effect in some people who have problems to go to, uh, to bed at night. And that's the reason why also, I think I mentioned this before, people that were when we um, talk about sleep cycle, and people that work in night shifts, we are supposed to be sleeping, but we are working. Our body detects a light of the environment, and we think, okay, the, 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 all the circadian rhythm has changed. And now, during the night, where I'm supposed to be sleeping, I'm taking breaks and I'm eating. So, I'm stimulating production of insulin, I'm, I'm changing all my cycle during the time. And uh, during the day, I try to go sleep, and it's very hard to sleep during the day. I have to eat, follow my normal breakfast, lunch, and dinner, a little bit, and everything starts changing, especially after a long time working on night shifts. Other tissues, other endocrine glands and hormones are found in different systems like the GI, gastrointestinal tract, gastrin, secretin, cholecystokinin. We'll mention this uh, when we get to the digestive system and see how they work. Uh, in the gonads, ovaries, and testes, we have production of testosterone, estrogen, progesterone, We'll mention them again when we get to the reproductive system. We'll see the effect on different reproductive organs and uh, the physiology. The placenta, the placenta, which is that tissue that connects the baby, uh, the fetus in development with the uterus and the mother. And that's how they get the nutrients from. And this tissue, the placenta, makes this hormone called HCG that stands for human chorionic gonadotropin and others to regulate different parts of the pregnancy. And when we do endocrine system, we should mention some other mechanisms of regulation which are named paracrine and autocrine regulation which are uh, described here briefly. Everything is about signaling, signal between cells and tissues. Uh, autocrine signaling, as the name says, auto, self. This cell is making signals, hormones, you can name it, or growth, uh, or factors, that are going to have an effect on the same cell. Paracrine, this cell is making these signals or factors and it's acting on adjacent target cells. So these target cells are right next to them, very close to them. And endocrine are what we are mentioning of all these glands where the, the glands of these cells are making the hormones released to the bloodstream 
And these hormones are traveling far away where the target cells are. So everything that we are describing in endocrine is part of what we call signaling in between cells that regulate different functions. Some examples, cytokines or growth factors are mainly found in the immune system. We'll mention some of them when we get to that part of the immune system. There are signals, paracrine signals usually, sometimes autocrine also, growth factors. They are named as lymphokines, neutrophins, depending on the type of cell, lymphocytes, neutrophils. And their main action goes deep into the DNA, gene expression in the target cell. Prostaglandins, brief mention of these compounds known as prostaglandins, are also some uh, signal molecules that are made from phospholipids in the plasma membrane. Remember, plasma membrane has phospholipids. Well, some of these phospholipids, under the action of this enzyme called cyclooxygenase, will make these molecules called prostaglandins. Lipooxygenase is another of these enzymes. And they have a wide range of function. This is just a graph to notice that there is this molecule called arachidonic acid that is the one that is gotten from the phospholipids or turned from the phospholipids under the action of this enzyme, cyclooxygenase or lipooxygenase. They will turn in all these, which are the prostaglandins, named as PGs of different types. And as you see in the final lines here, there are different functions. Like these two, for instance, PGI2 and TXA2, they have to do with the platelets functions. Platelets functions. We'll mention them when we get to the blood part, the homeostasis, coagulation. And there's a wide range of functions for these prostaglandins. We'll mention them when we get to different parts. This is just an example of some of the actions in the immune system, reproductive system, uh, digestive system, respiratory system, circulation, and urinary system. Questions to this point? Now to finish this part, it's worth mentioning these medications known as NSAIDs, stands for non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. Ibuprofen, naproxen, indomethacin, most aspirin. Also, these medications that are against pain and inflammation are based on the inhibition of the synthesis of prostaglandins. And prostaglandins are used for inflammation. They are mediators of inflammation, so they work. That's how they work, inhibiting prostaglandin production, improving the inflammation. Although there may be side effects that are mentioned here, like gastric irritation, gastric bleeding, but along the time, the manufacturing of these products has been improved and side effects are reduced nowadays with newest NSAIDs or anti-inflammatory drugs like these Celebrex and Vioxx, 
that are called COX-2 inhibitors. There's a different enzyme that they inhibit that they decrease the amount of side effects. COX-1 is the enzyme found in the stomach and kidneys, and COX-2 is the one involved with inflammation. So let's say ibuprofen inhibits both, and that's why the stomach side effects. Uh, Celebrex will inhibit COX-2 only, and inhibits the inflammation without the side effects. Yes, that was taken out. Um, the problem was uh, that some reports of um, people dying, actually, because of excessive bleeding in some circumstances, and that was removed from the, from the market. But there are still others that are similar to celecoxib uh, or celebrex that were uh, developed. Because remember that I mentioned in the big chart some platelets effects of these prostaglandins? Well, some of, those, of these prostaglandins have to do with the platelet function, which is coagulation. So there's an interaction at that point. In some cases, people with some problems, some specific problems, and that's where the reports were from. But as you know, in the pharmaceutical industry, when some of this happens, uh, they are avoided at all times, and I mean, the point is not to cause side effects or deaths because of medications that are not completely essential when there are other available, other medications available. But it was because of the platelets effects and the coagulation of the blood. But don't those cells inflate for reasons? Isn't it better to just stop that That's a good point. I mean, inflammation is, again, good to a certain point because it means activation of the immune system and that helps for healing. But the point is, when inflammation gets dangerous, let's say inflammation means swelling of some particular tissue, like in the brain, the brain swells. But that's good because the immune system is working, but it's not good because there's not enough room here in the skull, and the brain, the neurons will get compressed. And so we need to stop that inflammation because otherwise it's gonna harm your brain. In those cases, we need to use this type of drugs to decrease the inflammation. Uh, which is a normal reaction, it's a normal thing, but at some point it may get dangerous. And that's the point of using all these anti-inflammatories. So, but with regular pain, like, I don't know, headaches and cramps and things like that, is it bad then to No, it's not. It will not make a side effect if you don't have any other health condition, of course. If you have problems of coagulation, we have to be careful in giving you certain medications that may be a problem. But if a person is healthy, I mean, it doesn't make any damage to take some ibuprofen or pain medication. Um, in some cases, it's not advisable because it will interfere with functions. But as I said, if someone is healthy and no problem is detected, it doesn't make any problem to take these medications. And actually, they are good because, essentially because of the pain, the pain and... Uh, discomfort that may cause. Any other question? I think we should stop at this point, and I'm going to give the uh, five minutes to Professor Rodriguez here, who is uh, going to be with you for some minutes. <laughs>